Now, Lyle, the tooth, uh, is it still bothering you or is it, is it feeling much better? No, it doesn't. No, it won't feel better for a couple of weeks. Oh, okay. Uh, you, oh, it looks like Ben has got it worked out. Let's unmute him. God, we should have used that when you pitched it the first time. <laughs> that was the first time. That was it. Oh, yeah. That's the creative, the, the creative muse coming, coming yeah. down. Now. That's just off the spur of your cuff. That was just right there live for you. Yeah, that's amazing. Do you, do you find yourself thinking with the keyboard? I mean, uh, I'm, I don't know how music works and musicians work. And I, you know, Lyle probably thinks through his bells there in the carillon. Well, so I, I try not to think about anything when I'm at the keyboard, really. Get out of your way. And uh, the, the rhyme scheme is always something that takes care of itself initially, if you, if you don't think too much about it. Mm. And mu musically, uh, well, there are a lot of musical tropes, you know. Uh, all the songs that we know that stick in our mind, the earworms, are based on musical tropes. So like when I sat down and started to play and then out came, what do you know? It just, I, I was listening to it. You were gone. You were gone. Well, I heard it yeah. when you heard it. Yeah. I think that's as good as around midnight any day. <laughs> <laughs> and timelier because it's not even midnight, not even close to midnight. Uh, well, in some circles that would be yeah. blasphemy, but I get it. <laughs> yeah, I know, but I'm not serious, you know. Yeah, uh, like, like like musical ideas though. Do they come from sitting around the piano, piano, or do they come from working out one of those tropes you're talking about, or or what? Yeah, mistakes usually. You, you play yeah. something you didn't expect, and it catches your ear, and uh, it's the surprise of the thing that grabs your attention and makes you want to develop it. And and you know, it's it's not how to start writing a song that's problematic. It's it's how to end, how to how to recognize when it's written. Yeah. You, know, you better walk away from it at some point while it's still fresh. If you squeeze all the air out of something, yeah, uh, it doesn't have appeal. So, uh, yeah, I'll sit down and I'll play something, and my my, uh, my hands will come upon something that are interesting to me, and I'll try to develop it. And sometimes it turns into a song right away. Sometimes years go by, and I can't figure out what to do with it. Yeah. Anyway, there was a jazz standard. Mm -hmm. As I was playing the chords, these other words came into head, my head, and I wrote this song based on the chord changes of another song, which is very common. And, yeah. and, the, and the song was this. 
I might be wrong, but it sure seems to me. The past ain't what it was, and the future ain't what it used to be. Oh, everywhere I go, I hear people say, Man, you should have been here yesterday. You should have been here before the fall. Now's the price of everything, the value of nothing at all. I might be wrong, but it seems those days are gone. The past ain't what it was, and the future won't be here long. Now we're all just the sons of the Dharma bombs, waiting in the water of the infinite flow. And every time we take a look, there's another dead guy in your address book. Where have all the good ones gone? Why did they leave us here to carry on? I might be wrong. Ah, but everywhere I go, them that knows don't talk, and them that talks don't know. If silence is the answer, what could the question be? I might be wrong, but that's how it seems to me. Watch as time passes. Etc. Very nice. I, that was like either love me or leave me. It was a uh, no because you can't uh, copyright court games, <laughs> words and melodies. Well, for me, it's words. It's your uh, words. But yeah, in, in, in the jazz uh, universe, it's very common to have a, a song like I Got Rhythm, which was the, the classic example, you know, the, the Gershwin. And at the time, those chords were, were innovative. And jazz musicians started writing all these melodies on those same chords. Yeah. And each one of those songs that Dizzy Gillespie wrote or Charlie Parker wrote, whatever, was a separate song. was copywritten by them. As his, oh, Harold Arland. Uh, yeah. um, and, uh, well, you know, more contemporary, Johnny Mercer. Uh, Jerome Kern, of course, you know, the big ones, Cole Porter, uh, you know, the, the, the geniuses of the 20s and 30s who, who turned out these songs. The reason we're still able to hear these songs and, and listening to them is because there was a moment in time. You know, it's like the Beatles were a moment in time. There was a moment in time when a handful of composers, maybe a hundred of them, who knows, uh, in America created this body of music that uh, sounded modern and sounded intimate and fresh and it went around the world. You were in a band that wasn't necessarily jazz, right? When you started playing. Well, when I, no, when I started, uh, I always wanted to learn to play jazz. But of course, growing up in Racine, there was nobody to learn from. Uh, and I had records and I would put the records on and try to figure out what these people were doing. And, you know, it was like trying to learn a language by listening to somebody speak in another room. <laughs> I didn't know what I was hearing. Uh, and, but I, you know, eventually got to the point where I could play a little jazz. And then I came to college and that's when I fell in with the, the rock and roll because you can make money. I mean, yeah. Uh, I would make $35 playing with my little jazz group, and I'd make $50 playing with a rock and roll group. At the nitty-gritty, probably, huh? Oh, way before the nitty-gritty. At, yeah. at, uh, at the fraternities and sororities. We used to yeah. go and watch the brothers uh, pour beer into the piano and stuff. They had such a good time. Yeah. They actually, we were playing at the Kappa Sigma house once down on Langdon Street. Uh, you know, and every fraternity house has a bar in the basement, you know, with a bunch of kegs. 
And these brothers had so much fun uh, that they literally, at the end of the night, picked up the piano, and it was an actual piano, and threw it down the hill into the lake. That's how much fun. (laughs) (laughs) Is that really fun, though? Were they disbanded after that, that fraternity? No, not at all. Yeah, not in those days, huh? No, they were celebrated. Uh, yeah. They didn't have uh, a lot of music in the bar room after that. But. Was that the fraternity you were in with uh, Steve and Boz Skaggs and all those guys? Were you in that fraternity? Uh, what did you belong I, to? I, I, no, I was never in a fraternity. Boz was never in a fraternity. No. Steve was in the Kappa Sigma fraternity. When, when oh, yeah. Uh, no, not Kappa Sigma. He, this was Kappa Sigma. He was in Kai Sai, I think. Kai Sai. Uh, he he lasted uh, less than a year in the fraternity because he discovered you couldn't take girls into the fraternity house. So he well, then, those were the days, huh? Right. So then he moved into the rooming house where I was living on Henry Street. <laughs> and the rest is geography, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but you you didn't link up with him and the band and uh, and uh, all that until you were in England, right? Weren't you? You because I mean, you basically were you're a history guy. You know, your PhD is in in history, right? Well, American studies, which American was studies. Yeah. 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 Well, no, I hooked up uh, with Steve and Boz my sophomore year here. Mm-hmm. They had this little rock and roll band, and uh, yeah. So that was fun. It, it wasn't supposed to lead to anything. There was no chance of anybody ever hearing any of us. Why would they hear us? You know. But, uh, <laughs> in '66, in Steve dropped out of school, went to San Francisco, fell into the the scene out there played Monterey, got a record deal. I had gone to England to go to graduate school, and lo and behold, Stephen Boz showed up in London the same year to make their record. And That's I what it was, yeah. Fell back in with it. But you were there like, on, you had one of them big grants, didn't you? Where, where were you, at Oxford? or? Uh, I was in Sussex, at, in Brighton, the University of Sussex. Okay, well, that's good, too. Sussex it was is good. Really good. It was yeah. more radical. See, the thing about it was, you remember Harvey Goldberg, of course, the sure. historian here in yeah. Madison. Wonderful. Yeah, wonderful character. He was the one who told me about Sussex. It was the equivalent of the University of Wisconsin or Berkeley or whatever in England. Mm-hmm. He said, uh, and he also recognized that I had to get out of the country or get drafted. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, he facilitated oh, yeah. my trip there. Good idea. And American studies is best uh, studied in Sussex, I think. Out of the country, for sure. Yeah, you get a better. I, it seems to me, if I listen to the BBC or watch, you know, watch it. They know what's going on here, whereas our own reporters are and they're just spinning wheels in the same whatever pursuit of nothing. But they've got the overview on what's what's actually happening here. The first time I was in a seminar at Sussex and they were, the, the expression, the American identity came up. I was flummoxed. I didn't know we had an identity. No. I thought it was just this ragtag mob. And it was interesting that they looked at us as if we were a type and it was uh, instructive. Yeah. Well, of course, they're types too, but you know. Yes, there are. They're ty- no type. <laughs> their types are superior to our types, apparently. That's okay too. But uh, you know, uh, all right. You now, so and then, the, what was the turning point when you decided to abandon your PhD and all you've learned for the for music was? No, I couldn't get a job. I, I yeah. tried when I got my PhD. I sent out like thirty letters <laughs> of application. I got no offers. So. Uh, Devoid of, of an option in academia, I moved to L.A. and got in the record business. Yeah. That was it. Yeah. I mean, if... Uh, and that was L.A., what, in the... L.A. Seven, 19, in the yeah, 70s? 71. Yeah. It was, unbelievable. it was gorgeous. It, it was... 
sky was clear, you know, by and large. Uh, the freeways <laughs> weren't crowded. Uh, there were musicians everywhere. The record companies were looking to, you know, make records. It, it was quite, it was a golden era. It was happening. It was really happening. Well, you know, I didn't know what to do. So um, I started calling. So when I was in England, you know, Steve and Boz were there and I made those records with them in England. And then I had kind of uh, fallen in with a producer named Glenn Johns, who was a well-known. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So he hooked me up. I did sessions with uh, various other British musicians, uh, Eric Clapton and a band called. No kidding. Bookie Tooth. Yeah. So. I figured I had these credits, I would go and uh, cash them in. And uh, we moved to LA, Judy and myself, and we rented a house. And uh, I started making phone calls and I was calling record companies. I would start with Atlantic A, and you know, I'd work <laughs> my way through Warner Brothers W. You know? <laughs> Back then there were, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 labels. And I would, oh, I had this demo. I made a demo in England with, uh, <laughs> Uh, Peter Frampton played on it and no Charlie kid. Watts from the Stones. Yeah. Yeah. Was, Charlie Watts. Wow. Uh, well, Glenn produced it. It was kind of rock and roll. This was back, you know, jazz was pretty much dead at this point. There was this really low point for jazz where yeah. there were no jazz jobs anymore. Everything was pop music and singer songwriter. So I was trying to kind of weasel my way into the pop world. Mm. Uh, I wasn't very good at it. And, uh, so the demo was, you know, I mean, I could say, here's a demo with Charlie Watts or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but I got turned down uh, by everybody. Uh, and for six months, that's what I did. I made phone calls and phone calls. And here's the true story of how I got uh, through the door the first time. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Johns, the well-known producer, he was producing the Rolling Stones at the time, happened to be in L.A., and he said, oh, we used to shoot pool all the time. Uh, there was a pool hall right down the road from uh, where I was staying. So on the way to shoot pool, he said, look, I just have to stop at Capitol Records uh, for a minute. I got to say hi to somebody. Come on, you'll, you'll come with me. We, we drove down to the tower that looks like the stack of record yeah, albums. Yeah, yeah. Hollywood and Vine. And we went up to the 11th floor to a man, his name, he was the president of Capitol. His name was Artie Mogul, M-O-G-U-L. And I've been trying to talk to Artie Mogul for six months at this point. He was born Mogul. <laughs> and, and his best friend was Albert Grossman, without the hyphen, you know. Albert <laughs> Grossman was Dylan's manager. Yeah. And uh, we go in there, and Glenn says, as my friend Ben, whatever. He, he, he doesn't uh, cop to the fact that I've been hammering at his secretary for months trying to get through to him. He doesn't say, how do you do? Nice to meet you. And he invites us to lunch. This is true, man. We go to the Brown Derby, the restaurant that looked like a hat, where we meet his friend for lunch, his friend, Albert Grossman. Uh, So there's Glenn and me and Artie Mogul and Albert Grossman sitting in the Brown Derby. When Artie Mogul turns to Albert Grossman and says, you know, Albert, there's only one girl in the whole world I want to, I can't say the word. What can I say here? Yeah, I, I get it. I get it. I get it. Okay, yeah. I want yeah. to have. No. Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. And Albert says, well, who, who's that, Artie? And Artie says, the Queen of England. And Albert says, the Queen of England? She's a dog. Why do you? And, Al, and Artie says, because I want to hear the Queen of England say, give it to me, Artie, give it to me. Mm. And Glenn, who's British, looks appalled. Yeah. I 
like a light bulb goes on over my head where I say, aha, this is who these guys are. These guys, this isn't about music. This has nothing to do with music. These guys are all about power. Anyway, the long and the short of it is, after lunch, we go back to the guy's office, and he turns to me and he says, so you want to make a record, huh? I existed because I went to lunch with them. I could have, and because the Queen of England went to lunch with us, too. Yeah. And I could have sent demos and knocked on the door for another year. Nothing would have happened. But because I was sitting at that table when he told that ridiculous story. From that point, what did they have you do? Did they know that you wanted to do jazz? Or did you have to adapt to something that they wanted to, to put out? Yeah, well, uh, there was no jazz. If there was jazz, you had to disguise it. And what I said to him was, uh, he said, tell me about this record you want to make. And I said, well... I've recorded with all these pop musicians. And uh, uh, so, and I, I didn't really say I want to put jazz musicians on it, but in my head, I was thinking, you know, there's this trumpet player who I really like. I could get him. I was like putting it together. In my, this is before there was something called fusion. Yeah. <laughs> where I don't know if you remember back in, sure. back in the sixties, before there was fusion, you know, we were all listening to James Brown and we were listening to John Coltrane and we were listening to all this different stuff. I was thinking of, well, what if maybe we could put it together? And I, and I said to him, well, and because Steve Miller and Boss Skaggs, these guys are my friends, they'll sing on the record. Cause I don't really sing. And Artie Mogul said to me, Oh no, 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 no. We're only signing singer songwriters right now. If you don't sing, we can't make a record with you. And I said to him, well, of course I can sing. I'd be happy to sing. Yes. I'm singing right now. And so the first time truly in my life that I actually sang was on my first recording session. I didn't know what I would sound like. I mean, I sang at the piano a little bit, but yeah. it was, it was complete fabrication. I mean, I just went for it. I, I just said I could do it. And I, I started doing it. The album was called uh, feel your groove. It was on Capitol. It was made in 1971. Uh, it, it had all these characters on it. Um, it, it. It was an interesting hodgepodge of, of influences, but I was lucky that in 1971, there were all these radio free formats, you know, sure, right, yeah. mm-hmm. play jazz and rhythm and blues and everything. And I got uh, shockingly airplay. I yeah. started airplay in New the York. F- the FM was happening. Yes. Yes. The FM thing was taking off and this was very much album time, not yeah. single time. And yeah. And the thing was, when you made the record, you think in your head, oh, well, this is side one. This is side two. This will follow this. This will follow yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's how I got in it. Well, that's that's really amazing. And then, uh, did Boz? Boz must have had a similar problem, I I would think, as you. As where, how do you classify him? He's so amazing, but he's so unique. Did he? Ha- did he have trouble making it to getting a getting a contract, getting recorded? Well, his first uh, recording here in the states um, was kind of a blues record. It had uh, Dwayne Allman on it. And oh, no Boz- kidding. Yeah, Boz was really a dedicated blues guy. Yeah, and so his first album was really in that in that pocket. And then um, he started making these more uh, kind of uh, romantic albums. And then in 1974 or whatever, he he lucked up with Lowdown and Harbor Lights and those. Oh, amazing. And, yeah, and then he just took off. Whereas Steve, I would think, would be more of a go getter. Boy, you're not kidding. And a deal maker. Yeah, Steve was a carnivore for sure. And he uh, <laughs> knew early on. No hard feeling. I'm glad to see there's no hard feelings. 
you could see, I remember Steve, like back in 65, yeah. when the Beatles records first came out, you could see it dawned on him that he could do that, that, yeah. that music, writing simple tunes was something he could do. And he had that pleasant voice. So the first four or five records he made that I played on, you know, they weren't really pop records. He was in the San Francisco scene. So he was trying to be kind of like uh, peace and love. And, and then he finally just said, I'm going for it. And he wrote this song called I'm a Joker, I'm a Smoker, I'm a Midnight Toker. And that was the end of that. And, yeah. And it all rhymed. There was a lot of rhymes just for... Yeah, well, he got lucky. He got lucky right. there. Once again, uh, you are the gangster of love. You are Maurice. You are... Space Cowboy. I am the Space Cowboy. Space Cowboy. You know about the pompous of love. I can tell you about that. Yes. Why don't you just let's stop with the pompadus, uh, pompadus of are what the little pompas? What are pompadus? Could be, could be pompadus. Yes. Uh, well, because the song was such a huge hit, everybody wanted to know what the word is. Yeah, what is uh, the word is? Like, like so much in rock and roll history, <laughs> like, like Louis Louis. Going back to Louis Louis. Yes. Right. It was nothing. It was a sound. There was no pompadus of love. Steve misheard. A song. So Trump could have written that. I, Trump actually <laughs> did write that. Trump actually wrote that. Sometimes I think Steve Miller is Donald Trump with a guitar, but that's another story. But Pampas, I thought it was Pampas, but it was young. Young when Pampas are young, they're Pampitas. They're Pampitas. No, it was yeah. nothing. It, it was supposed to uh, represent um, uh, the. Uh, like pompous, like like uh, inflated nature. I speak to you oh. of the inflated nature. Oh yeah, 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 something like that. Yeah. All right, all right. And Maurice. Maurice was a character uh, <laughs> that we used to pretend. Uh, this is weird. Uh, we we would uh, ingest certain substances, Steve and I, back in the day, ah. and hang out on State Street. Oh. And Maurice was a character in our imaginations who had this little pencil thin mustache yeah. and would be lurking in doorways, uh, you know, uh, trying uh, to be uh, seductive. And uh, Maurice uh, was just uh, an imaginary character that was, uh, yeah. What what can I say? I mean, I everybody, <laughs> it's pretty insane, man, that Maurice and Pompidus and these words have insinuated themselves into this vocabulary when kids goofing around. It's just unbelievable. Well, that's where words come from, though. And, and prisoners, prisoners and kids goofing around is where our, yes. most of that's our vocabulary it. comes from. Yeah. <clears throat> in terms of make, uh, a breakthrough in, an act, in, in the actual jazz thing, jazz record that you did and you said this is it this is it this is where i'm at this is me that's a good that's really a, a, a sweet question michael because it did happen there was a song on a record that i made in the late 70s and i called the song a good travel agent uh and it, the song uh purports to tell you everything you need to know about jazz and it was something i developed playing clubs where uh i took one of these musical tropes and started talking on top of it about the history of jazz. Mm -hmm. And I came up with this thing where there are three things. I've, I've uh, reduced everything you know you need to know about jazz into three simple constituent parts. And here they are. Number one, you need to have a bad romance. If you don't have a bad romance, you can't play the music. Number two, you need a good travel agent because nothing will get you out of town faster than a bad romance. And number three, and here's the mysterious pompadous part, is seafood. 
Seafood. And then I, I seafood. I don't know why. So and but the song went on and it had this rhythm. And you know the tricky thing for me was I liked jazz, particularly the idiom of jazz that came out of the '40s and '50s. It's a certain rhythm feel. Yeah. And uh, then there's the backbeat of rhythm and blues that I liked. And the idea of trying to put them together kind of hung me up for a long time because they're two, in some ways, different things. And on this track, I figured it out. And the rhythm was this. And the the rhythm that's implied is and that's called a halftime shuffle mm-hmm. and so on top of that i said this is a story about a young man whose true love was blind he was crying all the time thought maybe he could find a new love in paris france he's gonna do the paris dance but when he got to town all he found was he couldn't speak french so he was sitting on a bench all alone not to mention and the story unfolds and, and that and brings that brings a singing voice with it that gives you your voice as well voice. all and at that, once yeah that, that's it all happened right there and when yeah I, I got it this is what i can do this is it this is you this is you and it is it's jazz and it's you yeah because those that, those rhythms would not suggest those words to most people yeah in fact it's no different. one in fact no one in fact no one but you but, it was a way for me to invent a narrative, just like Boz invented his narrative and Steve invented his narrative. I mean, that's yeah. really what it comes down to. And then so that so suddenly you have a, a character. Yes. I mean, you're, you're Ben Sidron, but you, you have there's a character involved here as well. That's exactly that's exactly right. That's yeah. Right. And the character is based on who I really am. It's not made up, but it's only no. a part of who I am. Then where do you go with it? Well, I think the next uh, significant song I wrote in that character was a song about the piano players. I have a song about all these piano players. I like, uh, they play piano and it goes like this. They could swing as sweetly as an angel's kiss. I've been hearing George Shearing running steady with Freddie Red. Talk about piano players in the past that really knew how to fly. A one-way trip on a magic carpet ride I'm in the park with Sonny Clark Walking through the dark with Bud Powell Won't you listen to them? You know, uh, yeah. I started trying to inject historical stuff into yeah. songs And kind of quasi-philosophical stuff But always kind of light-hearted The idea was just to keep the rhythm going I, I, I figured out that, you know if you have a good bouncy rhythm, people are nodding their heads. And when they're nodding their heads, they're basically saying yes. And when you get somebody saying yes, it's like, Madam, could I interest you in a, in a, in a way to save money today? She says yes. Well, how about this brush I'm selling, which will yeah. save you? You know, this is what yeah. salesmen have done since time immemorial, you know, get the customer to say yes. So I always had a nice bouncy rhythm premise. And uh, I would be kind of humorous and kind of historical. And as you can imagine, it took years to develop an audience, but eventually. So what, but what about the bad romance part of it? Now, this is all upbeat and jaunty even. Yeah. Well, when did you get down and with the loss and the what's going on here thing? Yeah. A love. I, I had to give up the whole love thing because it turns out uh, nobody wants to really hear about that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, 
what I did was I wrote ballads and uh, songs that kind of masqueraded as boy-girl songs, but they really, they were about broader subjects. You know, Mose Allison was always my yeah. songwriting hero, and his songs were very simple, but they had these layers if you wanted to take the time. So I would always try to do that. So I've written lots and lots of ballads that aren't these bouncy songs, but they're almost never about relationships or about something else. Like the one I was playing before, I might be wrong, but past ain't what it was in the future ain't what it used to be. I don't know what that song's about. That song is about... And you married a good travel agent, so that's kind of... And I married a good travel agent, so that was taken care of. (laughs) Takes care of that. Where do they revere you the most, do you think? Is it in the uh, Scandinavia... And the, the Germans that just go nuts for you. Who loves you the most? Come on, you must know. Yeah, I do. Uh, the yeah. French and the Spanish. French and the Spanish. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's the one thing they agree on, apparently. I don't know if they agree on why they like it. <laughs> <laughs> they both. It, do they like it for different reasons, do you think? I mean, you go to, go to France, you're, you're playing at France at a festival, let's say, in France. The French really like the intellectual part. They, they do, uh, yeah. No, they. Uh, they honestly believe that the arts matter and that jazz, American jazz musicians are historical uh, creatures and they, they want to they wanna connect history, cultural history with the music. So they like that aspect of what I do. The yeah. Spanish, amazingly, uh, are just very passionate about being in a room when the music is intense and it's like a rhythm and blues audience almost the span like in madrid the audience is sort of like is chicago without the uh, uh cynicism of being in america see in america there's so much great music everywhere we we don't really appreciate what we have here but in spain you know they love it they, they it's so passionate there mm-hmm. and i of course i show up and i play these grooves and I get people standing on tables and chairs in, in Spain, You're just screaming. Is it related to what you're doing, or is it just coincidental? Hard to <laughs> did you do? Uh, did you play jazz clubs in America? Did, did, oh, oh, yeah. for years, every did, one. Yeah. Of them, I would go out on back when there were jazz clubs in America. Back when you could literally uh, get in a van, start in Boston go to New York, Philadelphia, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Chicago, Milwaukee, Minneapolis. Then I did the whole thing, go out there for six weeks, seven weeks with the band. Uh, you have to be young. It's brutal. It's really brutal. The best live recording uh, th- that I've, uh, I've done was actually recorded in, in uh, Madrid about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It's called Cien Noches, 100 Nights. And... Uh, that's a great live recording just because that audience is so hot. But I have, and if anybody is so bored, and of course in the pandemic, why not? If they were to go to bensidron.com, yeah. there's all these live recordings from 30, 40 years ago uh, that you can stream that are yeah. free sitting up there. And they're from around the world, basically? Literally from everywhere, from Tokyo, from Osaka, from... Uh, the bottom line in New York from everywhere. Yeah. Yeah, boarding yeah. House, San Francisco had a place called the boarding house. Great little club to, to backtrack and all this, your style itself and your, your playing style and your jazz, who influenced you most? Well, it, when I was like 13, 
I got a record uh, of Horace Silvers, uh, who's a jazz piano player. And, you know, the combination of he was really uh, a wonderful musician. And uh, it came into my life at just the right time. You know, when you're 13, it's such an emotional time that he really, he was the first one who I heard. And I, I thought we were related, literally. <laughs> I, this guy knows more about me than... I thought it was Silverberg, probably, or Silverman. Yeah. Yeah. Silverman, yeah. yeah. Godly. <laughs> so Horace Silver for sure. Uh, but then, you know, once I started, you know, getting involved, there's a whole litany of uh, piano players, but also John Hendricks, the singer, the jazz singer. from. Latin. Oh, yeah. Yeah. They were fabulous. Fabulous. Oh, and Ray Charles, man. Do you remember oh, when Paradise Day first came oh, out? Oh, sure. That just blew the, the top yeah. of everybody. Part one and part two. Part one and part two. <laughs> Uh, so, uh, it was a combination of yeah. kind of groove jazz and, yeah. And there's, I, and there's you, the, the you. Yeah. Trying to process it. I, I, you know, the irony is later when I moved to LA and I tried to uh, get into the record business, you know, one of the things you would do to, to make a living was you, you'd, uh, do recording sessions. You'd be a gun for hire. Sure. I, I was never very good at it. Because they would always back then, we're talking about 1971, 72, they'd want you to play like uh, Jerry Lee Lewis or Floyd Kramer. And I hated that style. I mean, I didn't mind Jerry Lee Lewis, but I couldn't play that. Yeah. I, I was never much of a pop yeah. player. And, and the irony is that, you know, the, the Steve Miller connection follows me everywhere. And yeah. I, I, it was never my my strong thing at all i love that bob dylan played uh, session harmonica yeah <laughs> carolyn hester only once uh, though only once only once yeah the, yeah john hammond was at the session and heard him and signed him a mature musician which i hate to use that word yeah. musician well, who says musician anymore you explore new things so where, where have you taken all this i'm i'm literally trying to write uh, a more honest personal song uh, that's just that's my goal yeah. I've written uh, hundreds of songs and some of them are better than others uh, but I'm still trying to write this like uh, we just recorded a song uh, Leo and I called look who's the old guy now uh, you know so I'm still trying to, to write stuff that may uh, on the surface appear to be totally autobiographical but in fact uh, tells a larger story so it's going to be that boy-girl song, that love song, finally, finally. Let me let me let me see if I can get this a bit. When I was a young man, just getting started, I didn't even have a ride into town. I asked all my heroes out on the corner. I said, no, brother, where'd you get that sound? And one by one, the old men told me about what they'd done. And sometimes how Well, step on up 
take yourself a number and take a look. Who's the old guy now? <laughs> right? That's my, my latest song. It says, I'm just trying to get better. It's going full circle, basically. Thanks, Ben. It's been great talking with you. I always enjoy talking with you. Yeah, you too, Michael. I'll see you around the hood.